0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast, equipping leaders to live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Hello and welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. We're delighted to be back from our summer hiatus and for the first three episodes of this term, we're going to be sharing some talks from our archives on the topic of rhythms of grace, rhythms that help us be sustained in life and ministry with Christ. These talks were first given at the 2018 Pastoral Refreshment Conference by Tony Horsfall. The audio quality of these recordings is perhaps not what we'd usually share with you, but we believe the content is wonderful and helpful, so do bear with it. If you'd be interested in attending a pastoral refreshment conference, booking is now open for our 2023 conferences. You can find out more about these at www.livingleadership.org forward slash PRC. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: About learning to live in the rhythms of God's amazing grace. When we look at creation around us, I think we're very conscious that there are rhythms taking place every day, written into creation, the sun rises and the sun sets. (coughs) We wake and we sleep. (coughs) The seasons come and they change. And we're all excited, i sure, to see snowdrops and the promise of crocuses and soon daffodils. We think, yes, spring is coming again. We go to the seaside and the tide comes in and the tide goes out and the waves laugh on the shore and they're coming in and coming out. And you get that sense of this kind of natural rhythm that is built into the creative order. And so it shouldn't
2: surprise us, shouldn't that <coughs>
1: the spiritual realm is also about rhythm. And the grace of God is flowing towards us continually. And the rhythms we're talking about are the ways by which we engage (coughs) with the flow of God's grace towards us. And how we receive it and how we let it work uh, in our lives. And how we learn really to cooperate with God. We're going to look at three rhythms of grace which are embedded in the story in John chapter 4. The one we're looking at tonight is the rhythm of working and resting. <coughs> then tomorrow the morning we'll look at giving and receiving, and then the final one um, is about listening and responding. Three very important rhythms, uh, I think. Tonight we're focusing on that rhythm of working and uh, resting. And before we look at John chapter uh, four, uh, I want to ask you if. If you would like to, in your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, and just look at something that the Apostle Paul writes about his own experience <coughs> of grace. To many people, the Apostle Paul is the champion of the active life. Here is muscular Christianity at its very best. Uh, rugged, determined high-achieving, persevering through difficulties, and so on. You read some of those little summary statements of the Apostle Paul in Second Corinthians, of all the and you think, wow. <laughs> what a man. How is he able to do all of that? Well, in
2: 1 Corinthians 15, there's a little
1: word of personal testimony from the Apostle Paul. nine <clears throat> says this, for I am the least of the Apostles I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. So his first experience and encounter with grace is that saving grace. I guess that's, a, for all of us, that's the starting off point of grace, isn't it? The unconditional love of God that flows towards us, that takes us as we are. So that we are saved not by works, but we are saved by grace. And for Paul, that meant that the persecutor became the great preacher, and the opponent became the great apostle. And uh, he was just staggered that having done the things that he had done, God could include him in his purposes and use him in such a way. That's the transforming grace of God that is at work in our lives. But he continues And his grace, to me, was not without effect. Grace has an effect on us. It does something to us. It not only changes us, but it energizes us. And so he can say this, no, i worked harder than all of them. So if you want a hard worker, here is the Apostle Paul. He can hold his own against anybody who is a hard worker.
2: And that's the effect of the grace of God. It motivates us to service. Jesus said, freely you have received,
1: freely again. And grace does that to us, has that effect upon us. But it doesn't stop there. Listen to what he says.
2: "No, i worked harder than all of them. And then these three little words, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So in other words, Paul is not doing this
1: work, this hard work in his own natural strength by the doggedness and sheer determination of his personality. No. There is a power at work in him which is enabling him to do that. It is the grace of God. The sustaining grace of God. The grace of God that enables us to do those things which God has asked us to do. So when we're talking about the rhythms of grace, we're talking about how we cooperate with that work of God within us so that we're able to sustain ministry over the long haul. If you just try to copy the Apostle Paul, but you don't understand that principle, not I, but the grace of
2: God, you will be heading for a mighty crash. You can only live that sacrificial, God-centered life
1: if actually you are living in the grace of God day by day and moment by moment. That's how it is actually made possible. And that's my great passion, actually, that we will learn how to sustain ourselves in all the ups and downs of ministry over a lifetime, over the long haul. So tonight we're going to focus on this uh, rhythm of working and resting. So in John chapter 4, we, we turn to this uh, lovely story which you know very well. John's gospel, the great evangelistic gospel, all these stories and accounts of individuals coming to know uh, Jesus and hear the Samaritan woman, and not this the Samaritan woman, but the, the villagers as well, coming to the conclusion, here is the savior of the world. It's a wonderful story in itself of people coming to believe. But John's Gospel is the most intuitive of the Gospels. John is the beloved disciple. Five times in this Gospel he describes himself in that kind of way. That's who he sees himself to be, the disciple whom Jesus loved, not exclusively, but very particularly. He defines himself not as John the Apostle, not as John, the writer of Gospels and Epistles, but simply in this way, as John, the disciple from Jesus' love. That's the best way you can ever define yourself. Friend of mine, one of the writers, I love to read, he said, learn to define yourself radically as one loved by God. That is your true identity. All other identity is an illusion. That's who I am really. And John has this particular interest in the inner life of Jesus. And he writes in such a way that every word has meaning. You can read it on its natural level, but you can also read it in a deeper way, because that's John's style, that's how he writes, he's a very deep writer. And yet when we... Come to the verse that we're going to look at, in in verse 6 in particular, he gets into tremendous detail. But let's begin in verse 1, really, just see what's uh, happening. And this is material which is unique to John. It's not in any of the synoptic Gospels. You only find it in John's Gospel.
2: So the first thing
1: we begin to see is Jesus as the disciple-maker. Yeah. Winning people... And training others. So verse 1 says this, The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus is a great disciple. People, with a maker, people are coming to him. Poor John, he's had this mini revival taking place, and now everybody's going and following Jesus. That's a hard thing to see, isn't it? I remember when I was a student in London, big Lucas doing a series of talks, and one of them was called, The Great Preacher Who Lost His Congregation, it was about John the Baptist. That's a hard thing to take, isn't it? But John doesn't seem to mind. John's response is, well, he must increase and I must decrease. I'm just the bridegroom, he's the group. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and so this great movement is now transferring to Jesus. But Jesus is also uh, making disciples. He's, got, he's begun to call these men, the twelve, to him. And they've been on this trip to Jerusalem, probably the first trip they've done together. They're getting to know Jesus and he's getting to know them and he's teaching them and they're watching him and learning from him. And he's even giving them the opportunity
2: to baptize. I don't know how it is in your church. I don't know if you would let anybody baptize. <laughs> Maybe they need to have got a degree in theology
1: and be qualified as a priest or a minister before they can baptize. But Jesus got a few fishermen with him and he says, you can do it but like you baptize them. That's a big risk, but it's how people learn. I'm so grateful for the people who when I was a young lad in the Methodist chapel in the village where I grew up, who gave me the opportunity to lead services and even to preach. I think of the stuff I said shocking really but you've got to start somewhere I'm so glad that people gave me those opportunities hopefully I've improved as the years have gone on but it had to start somewhere so Jesus the disciple maker and then Jesus the traveller when the Lord learned that the Pharisees uh, know about what's happening he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee so he's heading north I always feel myself that's the best direction (laughs) of (laughs) travel. I love it on the M1 when I see that sign it says
2: the (laughs) north. Yes Lord. (laughs) Take me there Lord. (laughs) And verse 4 says, now we had
1: to go through Samaria. We'll come back to that verse on Friday morning. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. In the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. This is a key verse for this evening. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So here is how Jesus has got there. And the interesting thing about this verse is that John gives us so much detail when it does, he's not normally interested in detail. He's an intuitive person. He wants the big picture. But here you can see where Jesus is sitting specifically. Here you know what actual time of day it is. It's the sixth hour, and we're seeing actually this interesting
2: thing that Jesus is doing nothing. When I read that on one occasion, it so stood out to me that something
1: inside me wanted to say, come on, Jesus, get a then. You have to save the world and you've only got three years to do it. And you think you should be a bit more active about it. And I just found it kind of staggering to think that John records that Jesus was sitting, doing nothing, having a break, a Kit-Kat moment. But actually... When you read the chapter, everything that happens, happens because Jesus is at rest.
2: Because he is at pleasure. He is sitting, having a breather. And John reminds us of that and
1: identifies that, because actually Jesus is endorsing and affirming the importance of rest. We're talking about working from a place of rest. Rest and work as one of these rivers. I'm sure I don't need to encourage you to work. You probably have a great work ethic already. Probably for most of us in Christian ministry, because we have a high sense of calling and motivation, and we've got the Protestant work ethic in our veins and so on. Actually, it's not work being called to do more work that is the issue. It's actually being pulled back from doing too much. And that's for being able to learn to rest. Our problem is not with work. It's more
2: likely to be with rest. That when we rest, we feel guilty. One of my friends in, in Singapore, uh, is
1: a young girl, and um, she had her husband full-time, missionary she work, work now in Japan. But she said, Tony, I was brought up uh, by my grandparents. And in Singapore, they have a very high work ethic. And she said, if ever my grand." and grandmother saw me sitting reading a book, she would say, Aileen, find something useful to do. So she said, I would get up and find something useful to do. And even today, she said,
2: when I'm resting, I hear that voice. Aileen, find something useful to do. So I get up and do something, even though there's nothing that needs doing. But I,
1: I'm restless when I'm at rest. And often that, that's how we feel with, Feel a bit guilty. We feel maybe we ought to be doing something. There must be something I can
2: do. And yet Jesus provides as an example here that rest is important to us. We'll actually see later in the chapter that he's actually working very hard. In fact, he said, he, he says later on, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. And he doesn't actually eat the
1: food that the disciples have brought up because things are happening and so he gets involved. But the starting off point
2: is rest. And really this rhythm we're talking about should be resting and working rather than working and resting because rest is the foundation. And building
1: rest into us is how we can sustain ourselves over the long haul of ministry. That rhythm, it must be a healthy pattern. So let's think for a moment about the humanity of Jesus, because this passage really illustrates for us the fact that Jesus is the word become flesh. That's the picture that Jean, uh, John uses, isn't it? John chapter one. He took human flesh, was made in our likeness, became a real human being. This wasn't a kind of contrary. He really became a human being, subject to all the human laws of growth and development. Subject to all the limitations of a human body. Subject to all the frailties of a human body. So even in this chapter we see Jesus is tired. We see Jesus is thirsty. And we see that Jesus is hungry. And you know, as well as I do, you can go through the Gospels and you can see so many instances of this wonderful combination. That God made flesh. Human and divine. But by taking human flesh, Jesus demonstrates that there's nothing wrong with being a human being and nothing to be ashamed of, actually. And the reason that Jesus is able to be a merciful and faithful high priest was is because he has taken our flesh and blood. He was made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, Hebrew says. So that he has lived our life And felt the things that we feel. And one of the things that comes out
2: here is that even for Jesus, working takes energy from him. He becomes tired. So getting up early in the morning and walking such a long distance
1: means that when he gets there every day and he's hot, he is tired and he needs to sit down and have a rest. I think that's really interesting, and it's really encouraging, because it says, you know, Jesus had to live with the same conditions that we live with. But it also illustrates that rest is the way that we restore energy, and the way that we keep going. So even when that woman crept up behind Jesus and touched the hem of his garment, it says in Luke's Gospel, virtue went out from him, it kind of drained him. And the fact is that ministry drains us of life, and
3: it has to be replaced and restored. And one of the ways we do that is by making sure that we get sufficient
1: rest. This is one of the rhythms of grace. The fact that grace is flowing to you does not mean that you can ignore that basic law, even for you, when you're giving out in ministry, it is taking something from you, and it has to be replenished. And one of the ways is by rest. J.C. Ryle comments on this passage. Jesus knows the heart of a weary man, and we would add a weary woman as well, because we all know what it is to be tired from the journey. So that's the humanity of Jesus. Let's think about our own humanity. What this says to us is that we can em, um, embrace and acknowledge our own humanity. We do not have to pretend that we are stronger than we are. We do not have to be a superhero, superman, or superwoman, who has no kind of need, who never gets tired, who never needs to stop and rest. No, we can embrace our own humanity. Psalm 103 it is a psalm that speaks about the love of God towards us, even in our humanity. Sometimes we might think that our body and our flesh is a bit of a hindrance to us, but it isn't, it's a necessary vessel through which we live. And in Psalm 103, the psalmist reminds us, first of all, about the love of God towards us. Psalm 103. Verse 8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love. And then it speaks first of all about the fact that we are flawed people. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to lead the God I love. We know our own tendency, left to our own devices, to fall into sin. But listen, this is what the compassionate God says. He will not always accuse Nobody, however, is angry forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so is His great love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed our transgressions from us. Isn't that wonderful that God knows our propensity to do wrong, and yet He's made provision through the cross so that we can be forgiven. We are flawed human beings, and we'll always have that potential, actually, to make the wrong choices. We are flawed, but we are also very frail. (coughs) Verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed,
2: he remembers that we are dust, we are creatures, and we are very frail. Physically we are frail,
1: sometimes mentally we are frail, sometimes emotionally we are frail. It's okay, God knows our weakness, God can work with our weakness, God can work through our weakness, and He loves us and His compassion is towards us. Then it goes on to remind us that we're also finite, we are growing older. Verse 15, As for man, His days are like grass, He flourishes like a flower of the field, The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear
2: him, and his righteousness with their children's children. Even in the kind of frailty of growing older, God is there.
1: One of the things we have to take into account as we get older, that as you get older, your energy decreases. Therefore, you cannot always do what you used to be able to do. Anybody reach that point? Therefore, you need to realize it. It's a famous saying by a man called said, you cannot live in the afternoon of life according to the program of life's morning. <laughs> you have to make adjustments. It's different. That's part of our finiteness. And you know what? I was okay with that. If you fall asleep in the six o'clock news, it's okay, God understands. That's your frail, human, finite body. And it's okay to be human. And what does Paul say? Second Corinthians chapter four, verse seven. Here's a verse that has been sustaining me in my own frailty, which I have been feeling very keenly of late. Second Corinthians chapter four. And again, for those who see Paul as this super-apostle who is non-stop action, always on the go, always achieving, 2 Corinthians paints a different picture. Paul says, who is weak and I am not weak? And uh, in chapter 4 and verse 7, these lovely words, that we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. This treasure of the gospel, this treasure of the light of Christ, this treasure of the Holy Spirit has been placed in us, that we are like jars of clay. We are earthen vessels. We are frail, fragile, flawed. Yet we have this treasure within. But you have to respect the fact that this treasure is in an earthen vessel. And sometimes we are very conscious just how earthen that vessel is. That we are made of dust. And yet, the wonderful truth is, this is so that the surpassing power of God uh, might be seen at work in us. Because in our frailty, in our weakness, the grace of God is at work to strengthen us and to cause us to be able to do things that we could never do in our own strength. So that actually God is glorified through our weakness, not through our strength, but through our weakness. There's so, a lovely uh, program that I saw on television recently about the crown jewels. During the Second World War, uh, the king ordered that the crown jewels should be taken uh, from the Tower of London. They were to be hidden so that they weren't, wouldn't fall into any hands. So they were taken to Windsor Castle, and there was a special vault under the floors of Windsor where uh, they were hidden away in secret. Hardly anybody knew where they were. <laughs> But the most important jewels were taken out of the collection.
2: <coughs>
1: they were wrapped in a cloth and they were placed inside a biscuit tin. Because nobody would think to look for jewels inside a biscuit tin. I think it's a very typical you <laughs> thing, <interesting>, don't you think? <laughs> Where are you going to hide someone? of them? in that, putting that old pin there. Nobody ever have anything to look there. <laughs> and it seems to me a kind of picture that God has put the light of His Son, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the light of the gospel, in a place that people would never think to look with. These weak ordinary people. Remember the is not many of you are wise, not many of you are knowable, and so on, but inside them God has put this wonderful treasure. And, and the fact is that when you see this treasure in an earthen vessel, it is God that gets the glory. You see, that is not possible for that person to do that. They are so weak and we know that weakness ourselves. So we can embrace our own humanity. Now let me share with you then the three ways in which God sustains us in our weakness and in our humanity. The first one is through the gift of sleep. Psalm 127. <coughs> Psalm 127. A Psalm of Solomon. Somebody call it a psalm for the stressed. Psalm one two seven. This is what it says in the first three
2: verses. Unless the
1: Lord builds a house, it builds labour in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stand guard in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves, for he gives sleep to his beloved. Sleep is a gift from God. Here we're introduced to two categories of people, builders and watchmen. And I guess most of us would fit into one of those two categories. Some of us are builders who want to establish something and make something grow and see it become bigger and better, and some we are builders. Others are watchmen, we are carers, we want to look after people and make sure they're okay. think most Christian ministry fits into one of those. But what the psalm reminds us is that you cannot just do that in your own strength for God, because it will not last. So he says this, unless the Lord builds this house,
2: unless God
1: is doing it and you are cooperating with him, it, it actually could be in vain. It may last for a little while, but it won't last long. And the same with caring. You can't take the responsibility for everybody's life upon your shoulders because you cannot be there sustained. And only God can be that. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. But the great danger is that we think we can do God's part for him. And therefore, anxiety creeps into the way that we live and work. And we work because we are anxious. We're wondering, what will happen if I don't do this? And how are these people going to
2: manage and so on?
1: And so, we eat what the psalmist calls the bread of anxious toil when you're anxious about your work, what do you do? Well, you get up a bit early so you can work a bit longer. And then you stay up a bit late so you can finish it off. And so your days are getting stretched and stretched, and you're burning the candle at both ends. And actually, what's motivating that kind of work is anxiety. You cannot trust God to do it. You have to do it. In fact, you have swapped places with God, <clears throat> and now you are the senior partner, and God is just your junior. There to help you when you can't manage. It's a very subtle shift. And it's the reason that we have so much stress. And God speaks right into that condition of heart. He says, in vain you rise early and stay up late. You may think it's a
2: virtue to cut the hours of your sleep. Get up early. Set the alarm an hour earlier.
1: You may think it's a virtue to stay up late at night. The psalmist is it's not actually. You will undercut the work of God in your life and the provision of God for your health and well being, because you will you will uh, miss out on your sleep. Sleep is the gift that God has given us to restore our bodies and to restore our soul. He gives to his beloved sleep.
2: Jesus was a good example of someone who said, You really could sleep in a boat in the middle of the storm, really? It means this, I think, friends, that we have to be disciplined about sleep. Just like an athlete looks after themselves
1: and makes sure that they get proper rest. So you and I need to have that kind of discipline, that we know the importance of sleep, and therefore we make sure that we get sufficient sleep, whatever that length of sleep may be. I'm told that uh, Federer, the tennis star, He sleeps for 10 hours every night. I mean, he's got people to look after his children and so on. But he knows that he cannot keep performing at the level of his life unless he gets sufficient sleep. It's normally said that you need seven or eight hours of sleep. But we have to be disciplined about our sleep. Sometimes that, that means we have to forego certain things that we would want to do because we are dedicated. Matthews, that's the picture that Paul uses of the Christian life. We have to be disciplined. We have to prepare for sleep. There's going to be a, a seminar about sleep. I think, isn't that that's right? Claire, is going to sleep? Is it right? Yes, that's right. Are you doing it? Where's Claire? She does it. She's sleeping, yes. But you know, after a busy day... You count yourself, can't go into bed now. You actually have to wind yourself down. And if you try to sleep before you're ready, you probably won't get to sleep. I like it to a big jumbo jet. You know, it's coming in from Southeast Asia to Heathrow or something. And when you're about 300 miles from London, they begin their descent. It takes about 45 minutes normally. They don't just kind of zoom to Heathrow and they come back with it. <laughs> no, they have to gradually descend. And you need to find your patterns for how you do that yourself, so you can unwind from the day. And so that when it comes time to put your head on the pillow, you're actually ready to sleep. You have to prepare yourself to sleep. There's lots you can find nowadays about what they call sleep hygiene, and how to do that, and, you know, making sure the room is okay and the bed is right. All these things are really important, actually, for getting a good night's sleep. And you invest in that, because, you know, if you get a good night's sleep, you'll have more energy... You will think more clearly. Uh, you will be uh, healthier. Your relationships will be better. You will learn better. You'll be able to resolve problems more easily.
2: <laughs> You'll be fresher for what the next day has to come. I know that sleep is not easy, actually. Some people suffer from insomnia. It's a
1: it's a condition I find. I know a friend in Christian ministry, she hardly ever has a complete night's sleep. When you have small children, sometimes it's really difficult. Uh, we have two children, and we're born when we're in Malaysia. The second one, our daughter, would never sleep. Oh, my, that is hard. In a hot climate, humid, no grandparents around, that was hard work. Doesn't last forever, fortunately. But sleep is something that we've got to pay attention to when God gives sleep to us and it's his desire that we're able to restore ourselves through our sleep.
3: There'll
2: be more about that to come. The second way in which God sustains us is the practice of Sabbath, really. This is God's permission to us to rest. Sometimes we need permission, don't we, to rest?
1: Sometimes I think that one of the callings... God has given me is to go around the world and telling people it's okay to rest. We need to hear it from somebody else. It's hard to give yourself sometimes permission to rest, because you feel you know, a bit selfish here. But actually we need to rest. Sabbath has its origin in creation. And So in Genesis chapter 2, as the creative work comes to its climax, in verse 2, We read this, by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested, or he ceased from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. See, the connection between holiness and rest, that's surprising, isn't it? That when you rest, you are being holy. Why should you feel guilty about being holy? About resting when it's holy. Because only he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So Sabbath is a creation ordinance. Long before it's in the commandments, it's actually built into the rhythm of life, it's one of the natural rhythms of human beings and of the created order. <clears throat> so think of this
2: Adam was made on day six. So his first day was what? A day of rest. He started with a day off. Well, that's good news. (laughs) Because that is God's order. You rest, and then you work. Hence, working from a place of rest. You don't work and then have rest as a reward. Rest is the foundation
1: for healthy and effective living Mm -hmm. and ministry. It comes first. That's the created order. In Exodus chapter twenty, one really, but in the list of the commandments, in that one, God says, remember
2: the Sabbath and how God created it and he rested it. It's something we have to remember to keep in mind that God says
1: it's okay for me to rest. In fact, God says I should not work seven days a week. God says to please him and honor him and to be holy, I need the discipline of taking. A day of rest. I worked with, uh, we worked with a couple in Malaysia and the husband wouldn't, he he
2: didn't believe in having a day off. The work was too important for him. So he never had a day off. Then after about two weeks of that he would go down with a heavy
1: cold or flu and he'd be off work for a week and he kind of got all his Sabbaths in one go. (laughs) Because it's not a good pattern to be in. It leads to your body becoming sick. Remember. And then in Deuteronomy, the background to it is different. God says we need to observe the Sabbath. That is, we need to find ways of practicing it. Not just thinking, oh, it's a good idea, but actually doing it. But here the reminder is that once you were slaves in Egypt, but you're not slaves any longer now. When you were slaves in Egypt, there's no chance of getting
2: a day of rest. Then God is not a slave driver. He doesn't require you to work so hard that you're going to collapse in
1: a heap. He is not Pharaoh. He doesn't ask you to make bricks without giving you straw. He says, take rest, take rest. So for those of us who are in uh, ministry, we have to make sure that we build into our schedules
2: time to rest.
1: I like to encourage people not to think of it simply as a day off. Because if you think of it as a day off, then you're in charge of it. You can decide whether you do it or not. It's at your discretion. If you think of it as a Sabbath, the Scripture talks about a Sabbath to the Lord our God. It's a way of honouring God in your life, in your human frail life. That makes it a bit more intentional Yes, sometimes I know in the (coughs) intensity of ministry things happen and, and you can't actually maybe always take the same day a week, but generally speaking you ought to be able to make sure that you have one day where you can rest, and you can rest well. I've done a lot of work with the Salvation Army, a lot of work here in this place, in this very room and in some of the other rooms here over the years. I love the people from the Salvation Army. They're very Christ-centered, very servant hearted very holiness-seeking, very Bible-loving, very Holy Spirit-conscious, great respect for them. Um, But then I've taught them this whole topic of working from a place of rest many times, different groups. One of the things that they've often said to me, and it's come up many times, is that, you know, the founder of the Salvation Army was William Booth, then it was Bramwell who his son. Then it was Ruth. And when Catherine was taking over from Bramwell, he was on his deathbed. She said to him, Father,
2: I promise that I will do my very best. And he said to her, Catherine, your best is not good enough. It needs to be better than your best.
1: So there is kind of enshrined in the folklore of the Salvation Army. <laughs> this deep work ethic <laughs> Where even your best is not good enough. It needs to be better than your best. So for them to grab hold of this concept of uh, Sabbath rest has been a difficult and a long journey. But because they have seen such fallout from people in ministry, they have persevered with it and they just produce for their officers this little booklet called Rhythms of Rest. It's about Sabbath, just a practical guide to how officers
2: uh, can uh, uh, encourage, uh, enjoy Sabbath. One of their reports says around 40% of UK officers
1: are experiencing stress or extreme stress at any given time. Stress along with anxiety and depression accounts for around half of sickness substances amongst UK officers.
2: If we believe that the
1: future of the world rests on our shoulders, particularly in the context of increasing secularism and years of declining church, church attendance, this will affect our willingness to stop and rest and leave needs on them. That's the context in which they're offered. This is a lovely booklet, and uh, because I know them well, Major David Ryder, who is from the Wellbeing Unit, has given me a copy for each of you. Uh, they're on the table over there, they're free, please take one and read it, maybe pass it on to somebody else, because it helps you just to grasp the importance of Sabbath. It's one of the ways in which God sustains us. So, the gift of sleep, the practice of Sabbath, and uh, thirdly, the promise of rest. The promise of rest. Matthew chapter 11, those great verses, those great gospels verses. I actually love these verses in a message translation where it says, are you tired? Are you weary? Are you burnt out on religion? The first time I came across those verses, I wanted to say yes. 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 (laughs) Are you tired? Well, tiredness for me, was my constant companion. I kind of, you kind of... Get to that place in region where you're living with tiredness. You always feel tired. Just the degree of tiredness. But the second stage is that you become weary. And that means that when you have a rest, you still feel tired. You go on holiday, but when you come back, you know better. weariness is crept into your bones. And if that continues, weariness actually leads to burn out. That's how it happens. It comes in stages really. Tired, weary, burnt out. So Jesus speaks to us about this need for rest. Matthew chapter 11. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you Rest. Of course, he's speaking particularly to all the burdens that were placed upon people by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and others, all these religious regulations, the do's and the don'ts, and all the things you have to observe and keep and so on. But I think in, in our context context, we hear Jesus speaking those words to us in the burdens of ministry. Are you
2: weary? Are you physically tired? <clears throat> And often we are, because ministry drains us.
1: And I've heard that sometimes it's not just the amount that we have to do, or the pace at which we are living, it's the kind of responsibility we carry, and the care and the concern that we have for other people, and so on, and that's kind of thing, it's not a measurable thing, you can't actually see it, but it just goes on and on. I remember thinking, just before I reached the age of 50, just a thought came to me randomly, I could not remember a Sunday in the last 30 years when I did not have responsibility at church. It suddenly hit me. (laughs) But every time I went to church, I was carrying some form of responsibility. (coughs) That kind of thing can take take its toll on you, can't Can't it? Receiving rest for the weary. Come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus wants to give us rest. It's his gift to us. And maybe you come to these few days and and that's what Jesus wants to give to you. You come just knowing that so much is being taken out from you. You You've given and you've given and you've given. And now it's time to receive. Let him give you his wonderful rest. Receiving rest. Finding rest through partnership. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest. For your soul, do you find rest? You find rest when you learn to work in partnership with Jesus. That's, I think, the modern way in which we would look at this kind of being yoked with Jesus.
3: It means to be joined in this relationship where we are working together. We are God's co-workers'
1: forces. But it's not a partnership of equals. Jesus is this senior partner. I'm very much a junior partner. He allows me to join him in what he is doing. And, and when I learn to work with him, then even though I'm working, I'm actually finding rest. Because I'm not striving and straining under my own steam to make it happen. I'm working in harmony with him. One of my friends uh, posted on the internet recently a little film, of his 70 year old father doing a skydive, you know, a parachute jump. It was a lovely, beautifully made film, just a couple of minutes, and you saw him getting into the plane and so on, and then getting attached to the um, the, the expert who had the parachute on his back. And because he was tied to the expert, they kind of jumped out of the plane together. You've seen it many times, maybe some of you have done it, I don't know, I would never do it. But uh, he's able to do it because he's, he's tied to this expert. And it's the expert who is kind of leading the whole process. It's a partnership. But the 76-year-old man is really not doing a great deal. He's saved because somebody else knows what they're doing.
3: And it was exhilarating and it was
1: wonderful. And I think being in partnership with Jesus is exhilarating and wonderful and joyful. But often Christian ministry feels heavy and burdensome and difficult because we're trying to do it ourselves apart from him. Finding rest through partnership. Experiencing rest even whilst we're working. Because Jesus says, it's my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus only asks us to do that which he has made us to do. He has created good works for us beforehand that we might Live in them and walk in them. And, and Jesus knows who I am and, and what I've been, how I've been made and His call to me is in accordance with who He has made me to be. And in fact, you can say, when you discover God's will for your life, you discover that for which you were made. And that's why it becomes easy and it becomes light and is supplying you with the strength and the grace that you need to do it. It's when I start trying to do those things for which I am not gifted or those things for which he has not called me to do. That's when it gets heavy.
2: Dr. Pamela
1: Evans wrote a little book, and and she called it Driven Beyond the Call of God. It's when you feel pushed and pressurized by circumstances and maybe other people to do that for which you were not made. That's when it gets really hard. And then from Hebrews chapter 4, just that experience of entering rest. Hebrews chapter 4, that wonderful chapter, it it ends like this, it's about Joshua not being able to give rest to the people when they entered the promised land, and because they didn't have rest because their enemies were still there and so on. And then verse 9 says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people
2: of God. That gift of Sabbath is still there, that gift of rest is still there, waiting to be claimed. Yes, that might refer to heaven,
1: but I think it refers to here as well. This gift of Sabbath rest is there for us to claim. For anyone who enters God's rest, also rest from his own work, just as God did from his. What does that mean? Does it doesn't mean to stop working. It means stop working in your own strength, independently of God. You have to stop working by yourself. That's the thing that drains in the strength of life. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That's the paradox that you have to work to enter this rest. Because it's actually hard to stop working in your own strength. Everything inside you
2: thinks, I've got to do this, I must do this, I can do this. Paul says, not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So
1: that no one will fall by following their example of disobedience, the gift of rest, the promise of rest. What about the nature? What do we mean by rest? It's not the opposite of not working. It's not doing nothing. Rest is the foundation for our activity. Hence the expression working from or out of a place of rest. Because I have rested inside myself, therefore I can work more effectively and efficiently. That means physically taking time (coughs) out to rest. Sometimes simply rest, to have a sleep, to get enough sleep, just to relax myself. Relaxation. Relaxation is you don't do very much but you restore your energy. It might be having a nice hot bath, it might be going for a walk in the countryside, It might be watching a film just reading a book, doing nothing much you don't cry much, but it gives something to you. Recreation is when you expend energy to get energy. You do something active, but the very activity kind of cleans your, clears your mind and, and it vibrates your body and you feel better for it. It costs you some energy, but you feel better as a job, and it keeps you fitter because you're active. Recreation. Now, we also need some play, just some downtime where we can laugh, because right? life can get very serious, can't it? Can get very serious, ministry can get very serious sometimes, and we lose our joy, and the fun goes out of it, and the sparkle goes out of it. But somehow we need to find things that just lighten our mood, lift us up, and amuse us. It's the way that we take care of ourselves, spiritually knowing that we're accepted by God, that we're loved unconditionally, that we don't have to prove ourselves to God, we're not trying to earn our His by what we do, we are loved already, Psychologically, mentally, emotionally learning to trust and to rest in his sovereignty.
2: And actually the government is upon his shoulders, not mine. You can resign as CEO of the universe. <laughs> One of my friends was working
1: training ministers in the Church of Scotland, and the very last session that he used to do with them, he called this The church already has a
2: Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) Just in case you think you're it. we're not, friends. We're not. The government. Let the government be upon his shoulder. Just want to
1: finish with this little story. I was at a conference. Yeah, well, let's just yeah, we'll we'll finish with this picture, Jake I'm just that's a picture of you tonight. (laughs) (laughs) just slightly overloaded (laughs) we don't have to know the difference between our load and our limits don't we just how much can you take if you don't know that then you will be overloaded the little church that I go to uh, it's a community centre and we meet upstairs so there's a lift that people can use to get upstairs (coughs) one really exciting Sunday morning People got stuck in the lift, it got halfway, because there were too many people in the lift. One of them was my wife. <laughs> and you could smell burning, and then we began to hear these voices, They kind of trapped between the two floors. And they had to wait there until somebody could come to get them out. I always feel it's a good discipline if you get inside of it. you just check how many people it, it holds, and divide it by two, because they always exaggerate. And then count of how many people are there. Because you don't want to get stuck in the lift. Because even a lift has its load and its limit. And we have loads and we have limits. You need to know yourself
2: when you're going beyond your God-given capacity. Don't compare yourself to other people, because actually we have different capacities. One of the great
1: dangers in ministry and in teams is that you know often people who lead teams they are high-capacity people. And they think everybody should and could live as they do.
3: mere mortals that they are. And sometimes that creates real difficulty because you
1: try to be like somebody else and you don't have the capacity. Let's have the courage to say, this is who I am. These are my limits. So we don't put the cart before the horse. We'll just pause there now, I think that's enough for tonight, it's been a long day, I'm sure, and we'll be ready to put into practice this gift of sweet beautiful scene for you tonight. I'd like to pray for you, and I'm going to uh, finish with uh, a song that speaks to us in that reason, our condition. Lord, you know the very condition of heart with which we come to you tonight, you know the very condition of our bodies. You know the very condition of our minds. We thank you that you are compassionate and merciful towards us. You remember our frame, Lord, you know that we are dust. You made us and you formed us and our others. You know each one of us individually. And it isn't in your intention and purpose, Lord, that by serving you we should be driven into the ground, into brokenness, into burnout, into depression. No, Lord, you don't want that for us. You want us to learn how to work in these rhythms of your grace. And so we pray that whilst we hear these two days, you'll be speaking to us,
2: Lord, and and you'll be teaching us about this rhythm, first of all, of work and rest. Lord, teach us how to honour you in our rest and how to see rest not as a guilty pleasure, but as a gift from you.
1: And as we rest, to be strengthened so that we can continue to serve you with joy and with fruitfulness and with vitality. Not just for a few months or a few years, but for the whole course of our life, we pray. while children we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the Living Leadership Podcast. We hope what you've heard today spurs you on in your walk with the Lord. If you're encouraged by today's episode, consider sharing it with a friend or colleague or leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice to help others find us. If you'd like to engage further with us on anything we've discussed today, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on any major social media application at Living Leaders or you can visit our website www.livingleaders.com livingleadership.org, where you'll find even more support and resources to help you live in Christ joyfully and serve him faithfully. Blessings.